0: Joe, hey, I'm not going to ask you how you are because I know you're fine. Uh, I have a serious question on the one day that I'm not fine. So
1: sorry. Oh. No, 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 I'm
0: fine. <laughs> OK, yeah, I knew it. I know you're fine. OK, so when you were growing up, was there a religion in your household or religions that you were aware of?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I was raised a Catholic. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But OK, so why do you ask?
0: Well, I just thought I, I thought it might pertain to today's conversation with Frank Falk.
1: Yes, actually, there's your segue. Completely, <laughs> yes.
0: Frank Falk, welcome to our podcast. I'm excited to have you here. You, I just, I'm just going to do my gushing now and get it over with. You're one of my favorite radio documentary makers ever in my whole life. I, I, whenever I heard there was a Frank Falk documentary coming on, whatever show it was, I'm like, oh, I gotta listen to that.
2: It's so bizarre, you know, our own sort of interior sense of ourselves or at least my sense of myself. So I'm always, I'm delighted to hear that. And at the same time, I find it so, so interesting how my sense of myself can be so different for the, sense of me, for the better and for the worse. You know, it's like, really, you think that about me? I'm, really, you think that about me?
0: Yeah, it can go both ways. Uh, but I was very excited to see you're going to be a guest on the show.
2: I'm thrilled. And I'm especially thrilled because as I was saying to my wife, what's great is I'm talking to two people I really like, like, it's not, so I feel really comfortable and I have so enjoyed your podcast and the atmosphere you create for your guests. It's just, I thought, I don't have to be afraid.
1: (laughs) I can't imagine that you would, I mean, (laughs) I've known Frank longer than I've known you, Mark. I went to school with Frank at Ryerson. I believe that.
0: You guys are really old. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, Mark? You'll get there too. (laughs) Oh,
2: I know. I'm old too. (laughs)
0: Uh.
1: <laughs> then we went, went on to to work uh, at the CBC at the same time, and uh, you've always been a, a really good friend. But and you know from listening to this podcast, and thank you for listening to this podcast, and we always appreciate your feedback. That we get the guests to introduce themselves, and we wonder if you would do this, the honor of doing that for yourself today.
2: Okay, I was really afraid that you would ask me that question because I'm I'm I get thrown off when people at a party I'm meeting say. So how are you doing? You know, a friend or something. I go, how am I doing? That's a good question. So I thought about that. I knew you might ask me that. I was hoping. So I'm going to answer that in the spirit of William Blake. Okay. So if it sounds a bit precious, I apologize. But I just felt I had to sort of like, how can I be really honest about this? So I'm a former CBC producer of radio documentaries who is now retired. And I look forward to nothing, at least when I'm paying attention. And I lack ambition of any kind, (laughs) at least when I'm paying attention. And the only two things I'm certain of about myself is that I'm going to die. And I don't know when, which is why I really think it's important to pay attention. So that's my introduction.
1: Wow. Can you do us one favor with respect to the whole dying thing? If you could just refrain from dying during this (laughs) podcast.
2: (laughs) I don't know. That's just it. I don't even know if Mark or you are going to be here in the next five minutes.
1: Well, I, I got to say, you know, if one of us does snuff it during this podcast, it's probably going to be good for ratings.
2: You know, it's so funny you say that because I was having that fantasy and I was thinking, thinking, I, I was going through this bizarre, dark fantasy of being shot by someone bursting into the apartment <laughs> while doing this podcast and thinking, Joe and Mark would have this amazing tape. <laughs> I don't know why I went there, but you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, so much that's, for Frank. <laughs> that's a really dark thought. It's <laughs> the kind of thing I think about sometimes. Except usually it's a clown with a submachine gun.
1: <laughs> but okay, so we've we've mentioned uh, William Blake. And that is because that is who you are here to talk to us about today, William Blake. Yes, yes, yeah.
2: And what I, I mean, I know that we usually, uh, we, the podcasts, uh, are <laughs> usually someone's talking about a specific piece of art. And in this case, I will speak of a specific piece of art by Blake, his book of poetry, "Songs of Innocence and Experience." But I really want to. It's more of a portal into Blake. And I think it's a really, for people who are interested in Blake, but haven't really ever taken him on, Songs of Innocence and of Experience is a really wonderful book to dive into. But, but I think it would be, it's really important to talk about what he has done to me, for me creatively.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to say that's, I think it's a good choice though, because it's probably the most approachable of his more well-known works, right? It's, it's one that you can read and go, oh, that's that's okay. I think I get that. Whereas some of his other stuff can be a little bit hard to figure out what's really going on.
2: Well, it's interesting, Mark, because I have all his epic poems, which I've kind of looked through some of them. Uh, I mean, I've read "Marriage of of Heaven and Hell," which is a wonderful book, and I've read a lot of his poetry and songs, uh, "Songs of Innocence" and of "Experience." But I began to read Milton because I had taken on "Paradise Lost," mm-hmm. and Blake's book on Milton is really a kind of a response to Milton, but it said, Said in the introduction. Now, many people have decided to take on Blake and start to read Milton or one of his epic poems, and a few lines in decide their sanity is more important
0: than trying to understand Blake. (laughs) 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 Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, I guess I screwed up. I kept reading.
2: And the thing is, I've made my way through quite a bit of Milton and it's wonderful. Like I, I'm still, I'm still sort of feel like I'm like reading is going to be like doing a marathon and I'm not quite sure why, because I do these little jogs through it and I go, oh, that's so beautiful. That's amazing. So I think having now read Paradise Lost, which is amazing, I have a better understanding of, I'll have a better understanding of what he's doing critiquing about Milton in his epic poem Milton
1: and maybe you're not having that negative response because you are ready in this time in your life and everything that's gone before and with that in mind I wonder if we could set the stage for this because some people listening may not know your your background can you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you did for CBC and and how that informed your choice to talk to us about Blake today Okay,
2: so let, let me just ask you. So so you really want me just in terms of my career at the CBC. We're not talking
0: about, well, I was
2: born on a snowy
0: day in Manhattan. It's your choice. I mean, I think one of the things I loved about your documentaries, Frank, was just how thoughtful they were and cerebral they were. And I mean, I think we share similar interests in, in the idea of spirituality and religion and like how those things play out in an individual's life. So I think that is part of what – I. Th- Think Joe's looking for? Absolutely. And how that connects? Yep.
1: Yeah. Just keep it less than 15 words, if you could.
0: <laughs> That's right. The clowns have been deployed in case. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified, but it's funny too. <laughs> for Mark's sake, because he's a professor and he teaches in an academic setting, he might appreciate this. So I'll start with going back to Ryerson just to say I dropped out of high school in grade 10. And did a whole bunch of stuff, moved out to the country, built a log cabin or, you know, a bunch of stuff, but decided around the age of 30 to go back to school. And it turned out to be really a great experience. I mean, funnily enough, it was I had to do a kind of a qualifying year because I didn't feel that I could handle the academic load because everyone is an Ontario scholar who gets into RTA. I was sadly disappointed. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were very sweet people like Joe who were – like just kindred spirits, even though they were like 10 years younger than I was. But anyway, so I go to RTA, go to uh, do that. And then I worked on some shows, like probably don't know the Shirley show. It was like uh, Canada's answer to Oprah Winfrey. Not really, but that's what it thought it was. And then I, I ended up getting work at the CBC as a researcher on Marketplace and then ended up as kind of the, The executive producer of Man Alive, I think it's easier to say that, so I was doing Man Alive because I've always had a, a deep interest in the spiritual dimension of life, always been drawn to that. And so without the CBC, I ended up, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I never had any thoughts of going into radio, by the way. That's the interesting thing. No interest in radio whatsoever. I was interested in children's television. I worked on Degrassi doing PA stuff for a year, but- I ended up when I took over Man Alive, that was great, but they were trying to kill it. So that was very frustrating. <laughs> they kill shows by moving them all around. And then I ended up on another show where I was deeply unhappy. And the vice president of radio, Jane Chalmers at the time, who was the only manager who actually got to know me, huh. <laughs> ever took an interest in me. I so, like Jane. Yeah. yeah no, good. and I said, and I was working on this show and it was horrible, it was stressful. And I said, Jane, I don't think I can, I have to leave the CBC. And she said, I have to leave that show. I might even leave the CBC. And she said, don't leave the show. Just, you know, I'm here. I have your back, but we need, it's important that you stay on that show because it was a bunch of young people and they were doing crazy stuff. And so I had enough and one day and I called her up and I, at home. She, gave, she said, here's my phone number. Call me up at home if you ever, are actually seriously. Wow. You, I called her and said, hi, Jane. It was a Saturday afternoon. I've had it. I'm quitting. She said, don't, we'll figure something out. Don't quit. That was amazing. I mean, I think it's yeah. amazing. And she was in radio. So I said, well, I'd love to do radio. And she said, I can't put you in radio, but if you can make things happen, I can certainly then help with that. So I ended up doing a first personal for the Sunday edition on my father's death. And then I pitched a story to tapestry called my interest in tarot cards, whether I was, this was a sign of. Insanity were were these tools of, you know, creative tools to work with, Mm -hmm. Uh, not for divination. I never thought they were for for divination. And that's where I first kind of got a chance to have my voice heard. In fact, Bernie, look, who was the executive producer of ideas, heard that piece and began to use it in his class that he taught at Ryerson as kind of a personal voice. So that was very encouraging. And then I ended up doing a documentary on my, father called deep in the heart of texas it was really after uh 9-11 it was and he had been blacklisted during the mccarthy era and he had always said that it was a terrifying time as he would say to me "Frank nobody you don't know what it's like live in a country that's ripped in terror and fear and i was feeling that i was feeling, oh you know is this happening again so i pitched a story and that kind of opened my the door to radio documentaries and kind of a personal approach, personal documentaries. We called them kind of docu essays, if you will. And fortunately, I was allowed, I was given quite a bit of free reign and got to explore more fully my interest in the spiritual issues of faith, what faith is. In fact, I did a piece and then I'll end it here on, uh, for tapestry. And it was called God and other dirty words. <laughs> and it was really dealing with the difficulty of the lexicon of faith because I realized that if, uh, when I was working on Man Alive, someone had asked me who worked on the show, do you believe in God? And I said, no. And she actually began to cry because we had bonded quite close around spiritual things. And I thought, now, why did I say that? Because in fact, God is completely significant and central to my life, however you want to understand those that word. But that is very important to me. I thought, why is that? And I thought, well, I think because I think in this culture, especially at the CBC, you're perceived as kind of weak-minded if you say that you believe in God or you have some religious faith if you know it's uh, huh. simple-minded. And certainly there are a lot of people who do have faith and are simple-minded. But that's true about people who don't
0: have faith and are simple-minded. Hmm. <laughs> a very strong current of that, actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the new atheist movement.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. And I did a piece called, Mark, called Walking the Edge of Reason and Awe that where I interviewed Chris Hedges who is just – furious about the what he considered atheist fundamentalists. You know, he said, They're just as yeah. fundamentalists. They just sort of and I said, I notice you're getting angry and he said, Yeah, I am getting angry because there's a lot of really there's wisdom in the Bible. Like, you shouldn't shut yourself off from that just to kind of dismiss it and have people like Richard Dawkins say, oh, it's just a book of fairy tales. No, it's a bit more than that.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, and that is, you know, Mark, you had asked about my religion at the beginning of the podcast. I said, raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I've always appreciated being raised Catholic because it did walk me through the Bible. And I do have a a reverence for it.
2: Or at least a literacy around it. I mean, that's, I I mean, one of the big problems I see is lack of critical literacy, you know, critical thinking. People are scientifically illiterate and they're biblically illiterate. You know, they just don't know. (laughs) Anyway, so just to get to Blake. So I was given the opportunity to do a documentary on Blake because it was the 250th anniversary of his death, I think. So Mm -hmm. that is what I I mean, I was familiar with Blake having been, you know, a a teenager in the late 60s and doing psychedelics and, you know, and all that really, you know, Mm -hmm. Blake Blake was there, of course, but never he was more there as, you know, things like, you know, to see a heaven in a wildflower, you know hold eternity in the palm of your hand Those, I think I have that right but this documentary really kind of made me uh, really deeply appreciate what Blake was about and what he was doing and how radical he was not just politically but that he was not only a visionary but he was a radical psychologist I mean his critique of, of what was happening to the, the subjects
0: experience of themselves <laughs> you know uh, was brilliant and it's relevant today yeah, he was revolutionary in a, in a real sense. And he lived in a revolutionary time, you know. He he was writing during the period of the French Revolution and that's, you know, his his uh the Songs of Innocence and Experience came out in 1789, which is when the French Revolution started. But he wasn't really a revolutionary in that sense. He was revolutionary in the sense that as you say, psychology. He actually understood something about human psychology that other people didn't. It's, it's interesting because he's kind of claimed by the Romantics. Yeah, that no, he's not a Romantic. But he's not really a Romantic. <laughs> and he's definitely not an Enlightenment thinker, at oh, least not yeah, in the okay. traditional sense, right? No, no. He's not about science and rationality, he's all about imagination and the inner life.
1: Okay, I'm going to get you guys to stop down right there and just a few words on romantics versus enlightenment for those people who may not be familiar with that. That's a good question.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, the enlightenment is where science comes from. It starts in the Renaissance, but you know, the next century, it starts to really build, and people start to figure out, oh, we've got this thing called the empirical process, and we can actually figure out how the world really works. We don't have to just listen to what... Sorry, Joe, the Catholic Church tells us about how the world works, which of course had an influence on the world in a pretty major way. And so eventually we got to a point where I would say it was kind of a reductive idea that we are going to be able to describe exactly how the universe is via science.
2: What was happening with science is what he was crit- first, you know, he wasn't anti science by any no. means. What he was anti was that it was this is the only way to the truth we reveal the truth. He's already seen that with religion. <laughs> yes. you know, that, that kind. And what he was really concerned about with in terms of what you're talking about empiricism was the rise of the empirical self. And, and the and yes. the notion of the empirical self is that human knowledge comes predominantly from experiences gathered through the five senses and that we reflect on these experiences and then we act upon these experiences, but we're passive observers. And what he realized and what neuroscience completely validates because I interviewed a neuroscientist for
1: one of my documents. A couple of hundred years later, it's worth noting.
2: Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Blake, he saw that thinking and perceiving, which we have in, we have thinking and perceiving as two separate acts. We perceive and what we perceive is just what is there. And then we reflect on that, right? Or, Or we assume that what we're thinking is an objective representation of what is happening, Right. So perception is seen as a passive act. And in fact, the more you could eliminate the subject from what you're perceiving, the better, because then you have objective knowledge and objective knowledge is the most important, don't you know? Yeah, but what about me? Screw you. What he realized and what Science is saying is that thinking and perception, thinking, they, they interpenetrate each other. Thinking shapes perception. Mm -hmm. Right? And our perception then shapes thinking. It's, It's one process. We don't so much think about reality, we think reality. And that's a radically different way of understanding how we are and what's happening. Because to your point about, Mark, when you said, you know, this kind of reductionist approach to the world and that we could kind of figure out all the parts and make it all work and everything, the reason why we can't, we will never solve the mystery of nature is because we ourselves are part of that mystery. You know, It's like no matter how fast you turn around, you're not going to see the back of your head. You Mm -hmm. can't even see your face. You don't even know really what you look like. You know what your reflection looks like, but you don't know what you look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty wild when you think about that because we have images of what we look like and we assume that other people see that image, right?
1: True.
0: Yeah, we (laughs) we can't even agree on what blue is (laughs) or if the the dress is blue or white.
2: The fool and the wise man do not see the same tree.
0: Yeah, so just to get back to the whole continuum, because I don't think we quite got there. Because I think what you've done, Frank, is you've pointed out really well how Blake is kind of at that fulcrum point between what we consider the Enlightenment, which is about you know these laws that we're trying to discover. And, and a lot of Enlightenment thinkers, to be fair, were deists. They believed yeah. in God, and they believed that they were using these processes to describe what God had created. Reason was. Yeah, reason was paramount in that view. And then really – Romanticism, I think, is a reaction to that in a sense, and so the importance of emotion becomes the sort of raison d'être. Mm-hmm. That's a pun uh, of <laughs> of like the Romantic movement is like it's all about the emotional outpourings that the artists want to explore, and there you know there isn't a huge number of Romantic scientists that we can point to that would be you know romanticists and scientists, but some. Because they would say, yeah, you know what? There's an important part of uh, science here that's being left out. And that's where we are now, right? Where we have, like you say, neuroscience is actually exploring kind of the intersection of these things. Yes, yes. And, you know, advanced physics is really in a way as well. And so that's, that's why Blake is to me, I, I'm fascinated by Blake. He's always interested me as a, as a literary character and as an artist because i think it's important to mention that he was a, in addition to being a writer he was he was an artist he he you know he's just as well known for his, his engravings and paintings and, as he is for his poetry
2: yes yes and I, would, I just want to add to the and you can i think i think you would confirm this uh, or affirm it is that part of the romantic thing also was whereas clients saw nature as something to control and manipulate and the Romantic movement was kind of a return to nature, a kind of meditation on nature, that nature was revelation in a sense, you know, and that that that, that you would feel the sense of uplift by being with nature and, you know, as opposed to, you know,
0: torturing nature. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really important point. That was definitely a very – and if you look at Romantic painting, that's really what Romantic yeah. painting is about. Right, and And that way, Blake is a little bit like, yeah, he's a predecessor essentially of that
2: but but he's suspicious of nature too like he doesn't he doesn't doesn't talk about mother nature he thinks nature can be quite cruel like the the garden of eden wasn't a wilderness it was a garden so he sees the human imagination as humanizing creation working you know transforming
0: creation through the human imagination right that's true so you said that he's had a huge influence in your creative life and i'm interested in how that's the case because yes
2: i would be happy to do that well what he made me aware of was that the imagination is not simply something that happens at certain moments. And I think, unfortunately, because we've all been so cut off from our inherently creative capacities, you know, we have people who are artists who create and we have people who are the consumers of that art and often want to create, you know, so we have writing court. We go to work, you know, we all, I mean, I was before I went to the CBC, I explored many ways to express myself. But I was in many ways, I felt very,
1: don't mean to be crude, but very constipated creatively.
0: <laughs> no, I, that's I, I, a great I, way so. to describe it.
1: <laughs> we, we've all felt that constipation, Frank.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and many of us have had that view of our creations after we've created uh. them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine who's a visual artist, and I think I've shared this uh, anecdote with uh, Joe, I was visiting him once in his studio, and he was drawing. And I said, so how's it going, Doug? He said, well, sometimes I squint at it, and I think, God, this is brilliant. And other times I squint at it and go, this is a piece of shit. It all depends <laughs> on how I squint at it. <laughs> you know, thought, this is great life, you know? It all depends on how you squint at it. So in terms of how what, what, what he made me realize or what he helped awaken me to, not realize, he awakened me to that the imagination that, in a sense, we're all artists, because we're always creating. We're actually always in a process of, in a sense, improvising our existence moment to moment. Because you haven't lived your life before. I haven't lived my life. As I said, I don't know what's going to happen if the clown that Joe has called to come in and assassinate will be coming in in 20 minutes. So, in a sense, the question isn't whether we're creative. Let's pretend we're all jazz musicians and a great jazz band. And we can't leave. We, have, we can't leave this. So we either can listen to each other and play really well and make music realize that we're all kind of improvising and it's a creative process and because we're always imagining our lives our imagination is what gives shape to reality our our, our sense of who we are it's a shaping force in our life so it was kind of a creative ex-lax if you will <laughs> you are you, creative Frank. you don't have to try to be creative you are creative the question you have to ask yourself is are you doing it well when I was listening to your podcast yesterday, Mark, I, I thought it was a really important point is that we're not innocent bystanders in life. We're all involved in life. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no such thing as kind of like, well, I'll just stand aside and watch it. No. And I keep on having these moments. I think we all do at different times where you realize, oh, no, this is, this, this is the meaning of it. this. This is it. As I think as Lily Tomlin's famous for saying, you know, it's not a dress rehearsal, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah.
0: Not doing something is a choice it's doing something
2: exactly i find this going back to these kind of ridiculous contradictions or these these things that are presented as being kind of smart but when you really take them to their they contradict themselves so for you know you often hear life has no meaning and of course we're made to feel that way because of course it's just a material process and we're just a part of that material process and consciousness is just synapses going off in your brain and um it's nothing more. Yes, that would be the very reductive view of – yeah. No, I, I heard a person – do you know Michael Schirmer? Yeah. I want to say his name because I think he should be criticized for this. He's the editor of Skeptic Magazine. And he was on Tapestry, a show on CBC that's supposed to deal with spiritual things. And he says to uh, the host at one point, he says, really, when it gets right down to it, we're just brains observing brains. Hmm. And I'm going, wow, what? dark place are you in? Well, As opposed
1: to uh, somebody that you refer to frequently, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who says that actually if we stand around and look at, at what's really going on, we would be in a state of constant radical amazement.
2: Well, he talks about the capacity for radical
0: amazement, that we should never become adjusted to life. So It's a bit of perspective though, right? Because some people will say uh, things are really terrible. And my observation is like, well, you know, it seems like lots of things are going right. Yes. Like, we're still here. We're still talking. We're still, you know, we're still living our lives. It's not a nuclear slag heap, which it could very well be.
1: Well, I I do like to remind people that the news is really just a distilled version of reality yes and it's not distilling the good stuff it is
2: yeah. it's not even a distillation of reality it's a particular perspective on reality because if you there's all sorts of different news that you hear complete contradictions if you read the toronto sun you're going to get a very different perspective than the toronto star is it because the toronto mm-hmm. sun lies and the, Toronto Star tells the truth? No, it's because they're bringing a different perspective to reality. But my point is, and what Blake's point is, we're all involved in this together, mm-hmm. actually creating, participating together. So it's not a question which kind of saves you from sliding into kind of a postmodern kind of thing of, oh, there's no objective reality and whatever you make it. No, we are in this together. We're creating together. We are responsible for what is going on. The problem is not out there; it's in here. It's in consciousness that we share.
1: He's pointing at his head. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what? To, to, to Mark's point, because it kind of speaks to something that Blake wrote, which is something you introduced to me, Frank, and which I love—the whole business of joy and woe. The the news basically just focuses on the woe. Yeah. And leaves out the joy, but as Blake would point out, life is an interweaving of joy and woe,
2: right, right, but but he would also I think he would be a wonderful critic of how media basically has taken over our mind you know we, we, we literalize what we 're hearing on media. This is actually happening. what actually is happening when we 're watching the news is we're looking at either or listening to the radio, and these sounds are coming out and being put together we're hearing this. other people hear different things it's not just that they're they they're just focusing on the woe. And, you know, we need some good news. It's the very – and this isn't to say all news is fake. I'm just saying we lose awareness. These people are just like us. The people who make the news, we know, I worked at the CBC. I know. They're neurotic. They have insecurities. (laughs) They have their biases. They have their assumptions. And if we're going to actually get along and really listen, then we need to also question our own assumptions. And believe me, as you know, Joe, I spoke to lots of people who were in editorial positions who I thought – I don't know where anyone gets this idea that anything's objective. I mean, these people are like making decisions, editorial decisions that they're not even aware of because they don't like the way this person talks.
0: Yes, that's very true. Yeah. It's teaching young journalists is one of the hardest things. The thing I find most frustrating is, and I think this is really true in a lot of, a lot of people who work in the media, is they have a certain narrative in their head and that's the story they're going to tell. And that's not necessarily the story that's there to be found. No, Mm. and that's why curiosity is so important. Because if you can be curious about things, then it's possible to go, okay, that's not what I had in my head, but this is actually a much more interesting idea. Let's follow this idea. Yes, Hmm.
2: Yes. and I. So, I mean, I, I was having this problem with a friend of mine who worked in news for a long time. And I wasn't expressing it well. So she heard what she heard me saying is that it's all fake news. It's all yeah. fake news. I'm not saying that. No. And I'm not saying it's just everyone's opinion because there are some opinions that are worth listening to. When you go see a doctor, if he's a good doctor, the doctor will say, you might want to get a second opinion.
1: Well, you, yeah, you have to employ your critical faculties as you're, as you're listening to this.
2: Exactly. Exactly. The thing that I find disturbing is that people seem to think when they're looking at their TV at the news, it's a window. <laughs> you know, they're looking at it. no. You're not looking at a window.
0: You're looking at an electronic box. That is <laughs> <laughs> to bring this back to Blake. This is where Blake is like, "Hey, yeah, facts are important, but we also have our inner life. You have to bring to it." And that was, I think, more his perspective was bringing the imagination and well, the childhood perspective, which is what the Songs of Innocence is about, right? Yes, yes. To to the facts. Yeah.
1: But now, before we get into the Songs of Innocence, though, Frank, can you humanize Blake for us?
0: Yes. yes. There's no
1: way we could do this in an hour. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, Just tell us a a little bit about the man. Yeah, that's good. That's good.
2: So he was uh, born in 1957.
1: (laughs) Wait, are we we talking about a different Blake? (laughs) I'm confused. Uh, He was born in
2: 1757, died in 1827. He was basically, as a young child. He was apprenticed uh, at the age of 10. Uh, He went to an art school, and then he was apprenticed to an engraver. He did have visions as a young child. He saw angels and trees, so he was very sensitive to the unseen world, so to speak, or very, very rich imagination. I see him as a patron saint for every artist who is ahead of their time or likes to believe they're the head of the time. And that's why no one's buying their book or, <laughs> or listening to them. But whatever, you know, I mean, he is the true, the the, the 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 patron saint of artists who are not commercially successful. Not only are not commercially successful, but are ridiculed and made fun of because he was ridiculed. It was quite, it's quite heartbreaking. He, he put on his own show because no gallery would show his stuff. And it was ridiculed. You know, basically the person said he's mad and he should be put in jail. <laughs> Whoa. But, his fortunately, his madness seems rather harmless. So maybe not. Maybe that would be going too far. But no, he was he was considered just crazy, and not appreciated whatsoever. And so, so he was, and he loved children. He was he he, he was married to a woman named Catherine. They were they never had children. They were, lived in poverty, <laughs> basically. You know, they lived you know pretty well hand to mouth. He never had, and he was buried in a pauper's grave. So when he died, he was put in a grave that already contained like I don't know three other bodies. Holy cow. Yeah. So it's not like he enjoyed it in another way in and in a much more serious way, not just in terms of like, you know, if you're not a successful artist, think of Blake, he wasn't successful. I guess what he really has awakened me and made me appreciate was process. It's, process. it's all process. It's all process. Whatever the end is, there will be another beginning.
1: What, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that to to do the work
2: because you need to do the work not because you're going to get famous or because you're going to get rewarded for it. I mean, surely, you know, any artist creates because they want to communicate. And I'm sure it was very heartbreaking for him that so many people thought he was mad because he only began to have a fan base when he was close to dying. You know, some young people Mm -hmm. really took an interest in him. I think they were
0: maybe even young romantics, you know. But he did have a – he had a slight fan base. He had a few people who were – I mean, that's one of the interesting things when you read about the Songs of Innocence and Experience is like, he did his initial, the Songs of Innocence came out in 89 at 1789. And then I can't remember when he put the volume of Uh, 1794 94. Okay, so, so that was, you know, five years between books. So don't feel too bad, Joe. (laughs) Uh, But he, he had, like, people asking for the volume for, like, the rest of his life. So he continued to print editions of the book, and it was always different, slightly different, because he decided to change something, and he was an engraver. That was his trade. I mean, in some ways, you could argue he was a very successful artist in the sense that he made his living with his art you know, he never really had a job in the sense of, you know, he didn't
1: work for someone else. He produced, but he, no, man. he
0: did. No, he, he, yeah, he, in the time that he didn't live in London, he was living in the South uh, East of England working for a poet who w- hired him to illustrate his manuscripts. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, we wouldn't know their name now. Cause William Blake. Isn't that a, funny? He's, hey. It's yeah. a giant in comparison. So it, de- it depends on your perspective, really. Like if you, I'm sure for him, it was very hard to not,
1: be accepted and now just to fast forward to end because i want to get to the songs of (laughs) indescent at his death there's a story that a woman who was present she had a very strong reaction to his death are you familiar with that story frank
2: no i just know that he was singing when he died
0: wow that's wild
1: what was he singing
2: i don't know what but he was like it was just a simple it was like very joyful it was like reading a song and then he just kind of died
0: i read somewhere that he sung a lot of his poems he had a song that that went with a lot of his poems.
2: Well, well, I do know that the songs of innocence, which are very childlike, yeah. were were written with children in mind and had music were supposed to be sung. Now the music is lost or whether he used, there's just tunes they used at that time that were common mm-hmm. that you could just sort of uh, use, but they were meant to be sung. Hmm.
0: And of course he wrote one of the most famous hymns of all time. Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 No, no, no. And that's, and that's, that, that's in his epic poem. That's actually in Milton, not in his epic poem. Jerusalem. Yeah.
0: Which I
2: find yeah. bizarre <laughs> in Jerusalem, but-
0: that's the one uh, Joe that in Monty Python where the guy wherever you ask about beds he puts the paper bag on his head I can't remember what the sketch was, but they have to get into a tub or something and sing Jerusalem <laughs> and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains creator
1: Monty Python's a tribute to Martin yeah Blake yeah that's not those aren't the right lyrics okay. <laughs>
2: I do just want to say before we get to to, to Songs of Innocence, just to answer a question you had asked me earlier about, because I think it's important, the joy and woe in terms of my work. When I did the documentary on on William Blake, one of the women who I interviewed, because all the people I interviewed were basically talking as though William Blake was still very present in their life.
0: Mm -hmm. It was
2: a doctor, it was a poet. And one of the guests that I interviewed used the term luminous companion. And I love that term. So I refer to him now as my luminous companion. There are certain other thinkers. I go, they're a luminous companion. I mean, they, they illuminate my life for me. You
1: know, I love or, that. Boy, that, yeah. that's, that's Lumin- going to be a takeaway for me from this conversation. It's beautiful. I will remember that forever because I think we all have luminous companions.
2: Yeah. Who are very present. You yeah. feel they're very active. They're, they, you know, you hear their voice when you're kind of in a dark place and you read them. They're very... So Abraham Heschel, certainly a luminous companion, mm-hmm. certainly Blake, but, but I just wanted to say it because this is important. One of the things that she said was she was talking about how she discovered Blake and that she had just grabbed a book of his poems. She had gone down to Florida and gotten this little sort of crummy little motel room because her boyfriend who she was going to marry had dumped her. And she said, and I was just like, I was just devastated. I didn't know what I was doing. And she said, and I open up Blake and it's the wonderful poem, Auguries of Innocence. And in that, she said, there's a wonderful part where he says, it is right, it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And she said, to hear that when your heart is broken and you feel your life is over, she said, I just felt all of a sudden the blue room I was in became like a blue egg and I felt it just cracked open. And the heavens were and uh, above me, and I just felt transformed. And I was so moved by that because she was so, yeah. We've been, we all been those places of dark, dark, darkness. And so that really became something I internalized. Just those, you know, joy and well. I mean, I read the whole poem in the larger context. It's one of the few poems, at least parts of it, that I can actually recite. But believe me, it's a powerful mantra, especially if you're in a very going through as I was at that time at the CBC a very dark time
1: and when this we rightly know through the world we safely go exactly exactly and i was always i love that joe because I always i
2: yeah once you know that you're you're safe you're not surprised you're not blindsided it's like oh right yeah right go enjoy and tragedy yeah. is a dimension of life there is such tragedy all the time so to to deny that is well is to live a very superficial
1: life as far as i'm concerned well to me it's a, it's actually like a, a a key like it's a master key to life, yes. Because when when you do understand that concept, of course, there's joy and woe. That's as it, well.
2: And fine, it's not like there's joy yes. right here and there's woe here. Yeah. And, no, they're together.
1: Yes. So when something bad happens, yes, it's it's horrible and it's bad, and you got to deal with it, and you got to process and whatnot. But you also understand in your gut that that's just the way that it is. And also,
2: I mean, like, you know, as as Joe knows, my sister has stage four metastatic lung cancer. And when she was diagnosed with that, you know, obviously it was devastating for me. She's my only surviving sister, only family member. And it was devastating for her. But in the process, she's, of course, discovered she has wonderful friends who have just been there. And the health care that she's got, the doctors and nurse. So there's joy in that. That's the joy amidst the tragedy. There's also joy, the affirmation that people are kind. People are kind. And that's to your point, Mark, that you made earlier. That's why we haven't blown ourselves up because human, the capacity for human kindness, for mm-hmm. simple human kindness has not yet been destroyed. And if it hasn't been destroyed yet, it probably won't be destroyed because we are connected. We are related. We know that.
1: Okay. In the remaining 30 seconds of this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to the uh, your choice. That's hilarious. Songs of Innocence. There it is. He's holding it up. And Ooh, that's a nice-looking addition. Can you describe the cover of that, Frank? Well, the
2: cover has Adam and Eve seeming to be cast out of the garden, engulfed with these, these flames, and in letter engraving, it's the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, showing the two contrary states of the human soul. Now, fire, on one hand, you could look at this fire and think, oh, well, that's the cherub that, that, that did gates of eden right with a flaming sword and but fire for for blake was a cleansing was consumed and cleansed and 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 so so it could be a very purifying image that we're seeing here even though they've been cast out because for for blake the fall is the fall into self-division right this the fall into subject object the fall into i was controlled the bad, me, or the good, me, you know, I meant the I and the me, and the me is the object, you know, so there's this this world of division that we fall into. And so the book Songs of Innocence and of Experience, the book of poems, where he looks at the two contrary states of the human soul, the times when we have that sense of innocence, but also experience. And of course we associate innocence with our childhood. So, so a lot of the poems in his innocence part, in the, in the Songs of Innocence are very sweet. And I think, but what's wonderful about the book is that it does really deal with the, the creative tension between the polarities of life. So – and the two poems that I picked that really capture this – there's lots of poems throughout it through that, – that, that kind of mirror each other. There's a poem in Innocence called The Lamb. Mm-hmm. And there's the world fa- – the fa- poem that a lot of people are familiar with, Tiger, Tiger, which is an experience, Right. So just to say the Songs of Experience, you're quite right, Mark. And it was, it was first uh, issued as a separate work in 1789. And then by 1794, they were being sold together.
0: Right, yeah. And there are yeah. only a few copies were made. Yeah, like literally handfuls. Of, like, yeah. I think I read somewhere there was 26 copies of the combined volume sold over the years. And, wow and and yeah.
2: i mean the brilliance of it and of, of his of his work is that he decided he figured out how to not only write and i mean do the pictures but 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 publish I mean, it basically he was he became his own publisher because he developed a mm-hmm. technique of engraving and illustrating at this you know so they could be seen
0: together he so
1: 26 self published copies yeah yep so indie writers take heart <laughs> you, you- <laughs> He was not on Amazon. In two
0: hundred years, you might someone might be talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly.
2: And, uh, yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> the lamb, I'll just give you. I'll. It's it's fairly short. Should, should I read or just read a few? Please.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Read the poem because it's a great one.
2: So so the lamb is a very you know the 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 illustration that goes with it is is really pastoral as you can see it's the you know it's a young shepherd boy with a sheep it's very. It's just lovely, lovely. He says, little lamb, and you can almost hear reading this to a child. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed. By the stream and o'er the mead gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek, and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child, and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Now, you know, just in reading this slowly, you know, I haven't read it for a few days. it's just it has so much there, actually, because what he's really done in a very nice way is he's kind of joined this unity between the divine and the human right mm-hmm. and symbolizes Christ the boy the child but the boy is a child like Christ they're together this is this wonderful uh, and, and, and Blake was very much about that the particular and the universal together. That's why you can see heaven in a wildflower or a world in a grain of sand. It's always the particular and the universal, not one or the other. They're always arising
0: together, right? It's also heretical though, right? In the sense that it's, yeah, Jesus didn't make the lamb, God made the lamb. Of
2: course though, but, but, but many Christians believe that Jesus was God, right?
0: Yes. So, but in his society, that would have been seen as a strange thing to Uh, say at that time yeah Yeah. yeah.
2: now compare that (laughs) that feeling and that kind of the way it was very gentle and everything to tiger tiger so interesting about the tiger is that uh the spelling it's not t-i-g-e-r it's t-y-g-e-r there are different theories for why that is one that seems to be is that Tiger, the way it's spelled here, is an obsolete and archaic spelling of tiger. And Blake chooses this word to add a layer of exotic and archaic flavor to his poem. Like he's trying to refer to the world at an earlier stage, right? Mm-hmm. So he goes, and it's, the, it's this kind of driving me to, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies Burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art Could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, What dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, In what furnace was thy brain? What the amble? what dread grasp? Dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Hmm. So, in the first lamb, the poem of the lamb, you have the question when, she, when, when the child says, Do you know who made thee? God made thee. Mm-hmm. now like doesn't answer that question he says did he who make these but he doesn't answer the question it's like he he's he's really to me what's so powerful about that is the sense of the joy and well i mean the joy is really that feeling of openness of uh, and now this whoa is like the god is terrifying you know this kind of meta kind of reflection on the dark side of God, and of course, in, in in the Hebrew Bible, in Isaiah, I think it is, God says, "I am God. I created evil, and I created good. I created dark. I created light," which really is a very different sense of what happens. In the New Testament, that gets all split into two: the devil becomes the dark, and God is all good, and Jesus is you know. It all becomes very kind of uh, the the point being, and I think Blake was so. So that poem, Tiger, Tiger, is a very, um, a lovely companion. <laughs> <laughs> lovely companion. So, well, but Mir is a nice, it's a sister. It's referred to as a sister poem of, of the lamb and captures very much or expresses, gives to that, the, the polarities of life kind of mm-hmm. and to hold those both. And to know that there are things about life that are terrifying and that fill you with terror. And also at the same time as those tiger, great beauty that's the sense of uh, the sublime, right? Or, or the encounter with the numinous, you know, that sense of, 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 of terror, uh, but also. Uh.
0: Ah, ah, oh, it's ah, ah. The, uh, ah, the word is it's ah, which is overused. Awesome is an overused know, word now, but, but it's too bad because ah does, I mean, just the, the act of saying it, ah, like your mouth goes ah, open. Right. You can't not open your mouth when you say ah, because it is talking about the numinous. It's talking about just being, overtaken by Gops-macked, basically But yeah you're gobsmacked you're overtaken by this reality it's like oh my god yeah and he does that all through both books too like there's a bunch of poems that that he opens like i actually i was i was wondering if you to talk maybe about the chimney sweeps he has he has a poem in the in the in the innocence about a chimney sweep and it's quite there's a dark tone to it yes. because of course it's a child it's yes. a child who's been forced to spend his life sweeping out chimneys and this is this was a thing that happened in that in that era that children were put in chimneys to clean them oh, um, and then in fact it was so horrible that they actually even passed a law back then that said you know you can't have kids younger than 8 doing this there is one. there's a poem in the songs of innocence that is actually about a chimney sweep and it's not it's actually kind of sweet in a way because it's talking about you know like you say frankly, this the like, the things about life that are still about living that are still joyful. Whereas in the songs of experience that it's not nearly like that joyful. (laughs) No, It's more about the dark side of it. And he does that with a bunch of poems. And what's interesting to me is that sometimes he would move the poems uh, from innocence to experience later on when he was doing like these one-offs when people would ask, because people would say, I really, I've heard, this is fabulous that I have like my own copy. And, and so he would print a copy for the person who wanted it and he would change the poems then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It gets very dark. Yeah.
2: <laughs> There's wonderful poems like London, you know, and one of the great lines from London is mind forged manacles. And I love that when they're mind forged yeah. manacles. And I think that really sort of like speaks to, because part, part of just to get back to the empirical self that, that he was so, so critical of is the, the, he saw the negative consequences of that belief—that we exist as isolated subjects encountering an objective, uh, material reality—and gives rise to the belief that material reality is all that's actually real. It's the only certain, solid, and knowable reality. And you know, our our our, our the subject or the self feels itself. You know, we feel ourselves to be isolated, kind of lonely, and whatever. You know, we have these thoughts, but there are private thoughts. They don't really, you know, matter. And of course, it's a lie. So that's why we have such a, a profound sense of estrangement and, and alienation and mental health. I mean, from, from the past 40 years, like people talking about, you know, sense of life has no meaning. It's a tale told by an idiot, right? It's a tale told by an idiot and my life is meaningless. And of course, and that's all reinforced. I mean, when, when you your main message that I certainly got growing up was life has, has no meaning in itself, but we give it meaning. So being... Meaning isn't given with being, we give being meaning, and I think I don't think this is no, 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 that's not how it works because the meaning and significance to life is what we all share. That meaning and significance, we all are part of that beingness we share that being anyway i'm getting a little off topic but i do think and i think i think mark will agree with this that the songs of innocence and of experience song of experience is a wonderful introduction and maybe as far as you go with blake mm-hmm. people have attempted to read milton and decide their sanity was more important than understanding milton <laughs> i'm finding it quite interesting but
1: you're clearly insane frank
2: thank yeah. you <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think we share that, Frank.
2: This is sanity. I'm happy to be considered insane. Woohoo! hoo <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I would say, not only is Blake a wonderful artist and you'll be enriched by his art, but he actually is a radical psychologist. And if you actually get into his, under, his critique of modern, you know, he's one of the early critics of modernity and the implications of that and the alienation and the trauma of materialism. (laughs) Basically, you know, when you, when you have this, this belief that the ground of existence is, is just simply matter. And because then where there, there is no place for you, really, you're just kind of, as, as someone explained when we were talking about consciousness and the theory, Darwin's theory of evolution, I don't know, it's sort of like it's secreted by matter in some way in the way that urine is secreted by the kidneys. It sort of happens. No explanation, no explanation. Don't know why I'm here. And there is no reason for me to, you know what I mean? It just, it, it, he was really wonderful at articulating the inner experience of the subject with the experience of being a subject.
1: I was trying to think of some pithy way to wrap this up, but I think you just did that, Frank. So thank you.
2: Well, I want to thank you both so very much for uh, inviting me to be part of this podcast. I think you guys are doing great stuff. And and so it was a real pleasure to get to speak to Mark.
0: This was a real pleasure. Thank you, Frank.
1: Frank, thank you very much for being on our podcast, Recreative. Okay, we'll talk later. Yes, absolutely. Bye. Bye.
0: Joe, I'm really enjoying this. This has been fun, but I don't want to do this podcast anymore. You're talking about stopping the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to take August off. I just had like a heart attack, Mark. I was just trying to get that rise out of (laughs) you. So yeah, I think we should take August off. I think we should end end of July and come
1: back after Labor Day. I think that's a terrific idea. Why don't we do a special episode to finish the whole thing off? A very special episode? very special episode, yes. And we're going to launch your book, right? Yes. We're going to launch my book, Adventures in the Radio Trade, with a special live edition of Recreative. That sounds perfect. So we'll do that on the 30th. Sunday the 30th will be a special live edition of Recreative, after which we'll take August off.
0: And then we'll be back on... After Labor Day. After Labor Day. I'll take my white pants off at that point. Your white pants. (laughs) Right, because you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day.
1: Do I look like someone who pays any attention to that kind of... Do I look like someone who has white pants?